Welcome to the Naked Monk. The Naked Monk is for people who want to explore Buddhism without faith or wishful thinking. We've been immersed in its ancient forms and critique it from the inside out, breaking through the crust of tradition in search of the Buddha's true intent. We think of him as having something to say, but also as being mortal like us, and his teaching as both vulnerable to the imperfections of the human mind and a practical tool for everyday life. We're seekers of freedom, a deep life, and the wisdom of the heart. Today I'm in conversation with Stephen Batchelor, a contemporary Buddhist teacher and writer known for his secular or agnostic approach to Buddhism. Stephen considers Buddhism to be a constantly evolving culture of awakening rather than a religious system based on immutable beliefs and dogma. He engages in a critical exploration of Buddhism's role in the modern world, which has earned him both condemnation as a heretic and praise as a reformer. Stephen is also one of my earliest friends in Buddhism. We studied together as monks under Geshe Rabtan in the scholastic Galupa tradition of Tibetan Buddhism in the 1970s, and Stephen was my very first teacher of scriptural Tibetan. We had many conversations about the meaning of what we were studying and how it applied to the present day. In this conversation, we discuss why we should or shouldn't call ourselves Buddhists and about the mainstreaming of mindfulness. We also discuss his recasting of the four truths into the four tasks and the difficulty we have digesting this fundamental change in the way we see Buddhism. Here's our conversation. Stephen, you're accused nowadays of not even being a proper Buddhist, but you still call yourself one. In fact, you call yourself an independent Buddhist scholar. Whereas I don't really call myself a Buddhist, I don't think I fit in. I don't belong to any Buddhist organization. You might think this is a very old conversation which we're picking up again. Yes, in some ways I think this is, uh, in a sense, a continuation of a discussion we've probably been having on and off for the past 30 odd years. And... Um, uh, yeah, it's true. I do call myself a Buddhist. Um, and I think in many respects, uh, simply in order to be honest, um, if I, given what I do and given where my you know, commitments lie and where the bulk of my relationships that matter lie, um, then all of those are so deeply informed by Buddhism that my whole life is a way, my whole adult life, is one that has been rooted in the Buddhist tradition. Um, and I continue to study. And at the moment, I'm, I'm poring over Pali texts, uh, uh, trying to get a better understanding of that language. And so to, to then say that I'm not a Buddhist would really not make an awful lot of sense. There are plenty of people who would be happy if I did do that because they feel uncomfortable in my declaring myself as a Buddhist and yet not... Um, as it were, endorsing or upholding many beliefs that would seem uh, for many people to be self-evidently necessary if one regards oneself as a Buddhist. I don't believe in, in rebirth. I don't believe that my, my existence here is somehow caused by actions in a previous life. I don't believe in different realms of existence. Uh, I don't believe in nirvana as the stopping of the cycle of rebirth. And for many, many Buddhists, that would more or less disqualify me from being a Buddhist. 
So in, in a sense, you're not a good Buddhist. Well, I'm not a, uh, in some ways, I'd like to drop the word Buddhist. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I, I don't feel, I feel slightly embarrassed by it at times. I find very often that it uh, immediately pigeonholes you as a certain type of person in people's eyes. Um, and, and that I find actually is, is, is not very helpful. In fact, it actually gets in the way. I have the mirror image of that where I don't call myself a Buddhist, but there are times when I'm hard-pressed to describe myself. In many ways, I am exploring Buddhism in the same way that I always have been. I have a respect for the uh, Buddhist scriptures, uh, certainly in the sense that I want to explore them thoroughly. And when people ask, are you a Buddhist? I say no, because I don't belong to any tradition. Mm. Again, you see, you see, my trouble is if, if people like you and I sort of say, no, we're not Buddhists, we're often saying, um, I don't buy into any particular Buddhist party line. And the problem with that is that it somehow allows the B word, Buddhist, uh, to be, uh, be monopolized by people who I would argue have a very narrow understanding of what Buddhism actually stands for or not willing to look at it critically or historically. And I think, uh, uh, in a sense, we do Buddhism a disservice by somehow allowing others to carry that label where we can conveniently just step out of that argument. And I stay in this argument in a way to try to hold on to the idea that Buddhism does not, to be a Buddhist, does not require that I belong to a particular tradition. Uh, Tibetan or Theravada or Zen. I don't really see why that should be the case at all. I, I'm an independent Buddhist. Uh, I, I feel deeply rooted in the tradition that began with the Buddha, but I don't identify at all with any of the uh, orthodox Buddhist schools or any of the new reformed kinds of movements in Buddhism. Um, but I do feel that uh, there is plenty of juice uh, plenty of untapped potential, uh, particularly in the earliest uh, stratum of teachings, uh, that is calling out to be recovered and redefined in such a way that we make Buddhism into, into something else. We reinvent Buddhism, as it were, and I'm not really willing to give up that challenge. From your point of view as a scholar especially, I think that makes a lot of sense. The first point at which I stopped calling myself a Buddhist was when I realized that at a very deep level, my reason for becoming a Buddhist in the first place was in order to belong. Mm -hmm. I felt a need to belong to a group of like-minded people. And to a certain extent, that, that accounted for my um, very idealistic approach to it because I landed with the Tibetans, as you did. But I think with less critical questions... And I swallowed everything wholesale at the beginning until it, it caused problems for me. And I had to wrench myself away in a, in a more emotional way, I think, than you did. So um, perhaps my, my non-Buddhism is, is a sort of emotional reactivity. Mm. But I, I can certainly respect your, your, your reasons for maintaining that. I think it's very valid. Now, this brings us to the main question here, which is, um, which is in fact, a question I'm going to be asking a lot of people, and you, you, you are the first. And the question is very simply, does Buddhism matter? Mm -hmm. 
And of course, to Buddhists, yes, it does. But I'm I'm talking about a wider world here because I don't teach Buddhists and I don't counsel Buddhists very often. Mostly the people who come to my workshops of mindful reflection are ordinary people who have a passing interest or a peripheral interest or a, a sense of Buddhism which makes them not want to join anything, not, not to join a Tibetan tradition or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So they're asking me Buddhism in a much more cherry-picking way, like, what does it do? What can it give me? What do I not need? And um, although I'm coming from completely the other side of the fence from you, I think both of us are actually dealing with the same questions. What, what do we need? And what can Buddhism actually contribute to our society as we go through this existential crisis and spiritual doubt? Well, I don't think Buddhism matters enormously, but I do think that the Dharma does. And I know that might be a rather in-house distinction to make. But Buddhism, for me, the very fact that it carries the suffix ism, is really a construct of, of the modern West. You know, the, the word Buddhism didn't it doesn't exist in the Asian languages since the beginning of the 19th century. This is the way we have come in our culture to represent this particular religion out there called, which we call Buddhism, and we identify it, and it is identified in the media. But it means more than just Dhamma. Well, Dhamma, you see, is a vague term for many people. It doesn't mean anything. You can't just run around saying that. But what I'm trying to get at is that at the core of what um, we call Buddhism, there do lie um, a, a pretty coherent and robust set of principles, values, and practices, I would boil it down to, none of which have much intrinsically to do with the religion we call Buddhism. Um, most of these uh, practices, these ideas and these values we'll find in other cultures as well. But I think what the Buddha did um, was to somehow configure them uh, in a way that has a great deal of integrity and a great, great deal of coherence. And I think what has happened is that that uh, initial vision, which I think was as much a vision for another kind of culture, another kind of uh, maybe even civilization. Uh, over time became reduced to uh, the underlying dogmas for a particular religious set of beliefs and, and, and so on. And so I'd like to get back to that, to try to get back to what these core ideas are. And a lot of my recent work has been trying to sort of identify what they might be. Um, in other words, I think we need to get back to the fundamental principles and rethink the Dharma from the ground up. And what we might arrive at, it could still carry the word Buddhism. I don't know. It could be called secular Buddhism or something or agnostic Buddhism, both of terms of which I've toyed with. Oh, joy, another form of Buddhism. Well, that's the trouble. You see. I find this endlessly infuriating. If you don't somehow come up with a way of, of, of labeling yourself, People really have no point of access to somehow fit you into what they would like to explore. Um, if you label yourself too narrowly, that puts people off. If you call yourself, I'm a Gelugpa Tibetan Buddhist, that's so narrow that um, and it's so off-putting to anybody who's not open to that. But if you say, I'm just me and I have these ideas which are sort of vaguely rooted in something you might call Buddhism, there's nothing very 
solid or coherent or robust about that either. So I think we're, whether we like it or not, these labels are not going to go away and we're going to have to work with them, either by rejecting them and coming up with something else or just sort of lumping it and sticking with these terms. Now, I think in the broadest sense, whether Buddhism matters or let's say whether the Dharma matters, has to do with whether or not it affords a framework for living a life today that is uh, an adequate and authentic uh, response to the condition of suffering in the world as we know it. If there is in the tradition called Buddhism nothing that really can adequately respond to those conditions, then I don't think Buddhism does matter. Uh, the test really is to explore uh, and to try to sort of think through how the Dharma might actually be a, 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 you know, a meaningful and a, a useful way of living in this world. I, to, to me, the most important thing is it, it gives me a framework for leading my life, an ethical framework, a philosophical framework, a contemplative framework. And it's the framework that matters, not whether you call that framework Buddhist or not. And frankly, I think all of the frameworks we have today Tibetan Zen and so on, were devised for totally different situations than modernity. And I think it's, it's absurd to think that these things will, will be preserved and will persist ad infinitum. Yeah. So your version of exploration is, you've given your whole life to this. You've dedicated an enormous amount of time to practice and study. At the other end of the spectrum, there are people who have studied um, MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, and may not even know the connection to Buddhism, but who are actually putting something into practice, which really comes pretty straight line from, from the earliest forms of Buddhism in a certain way. How much, how much would they get out of it? How, how much do you think we should encourage people like that to study. And what about the purists who say that this is terrible, this is just watering down Buddhism and it's doing no one any favors? Well, purists who put forth that argument that mindfulness is watering down Buddhism should just think for a moment. What about chanting the Buddha's name, Namo Amitabha, or reciting Om Mani with the idea that this will generate oodles of merit and stop you being reborn in hell? If that's not watering down Buddhism. I don't know what is. Yeah. It's a very glib and unreflective criticism. And I think it's probably correct. I think mindfulness has become the Om Mani Padme Hung of secular Buddhism. And I, I don't see that why that should be a problem. It's a little more than that, I think, isn't it? For, for many people, I think mindfulness is, is a, an engaging practice. It's not a passive sort of... Uh... Well, no. It's, what I, well, if, if you do the Omani Pameum correctly, it's quite complicated too, actually. I mean, there's visualizations and beliefs and all kinds of stuff involved. But what I'm meaning by it, I don't want to make an exact comparison, but just to point out that mindfulness has become the daily kind of you know, baseline practice that many people in this world do now. Uh, more and more through MBSR and so on. And it's becoming uh, so widespread and accepted in, the, in our society that no, nobody thinks it's at all odd uh, or, or, or sort of alien or weird. It's, it's, somehow, it's gained mainstream acceptance. And I think that's actually... That's a good thing, isn't it? I remember walking around the streets of Switzerland with you dressed in maroon robes and feeling very peculiar. No, exactly. 
I think it's extremely, it may be one of the most significant movements in the acculturation of Buddhism to the West that has ever happened. But the, the consequences of it, I don't think can be measured in the short term of, you know, how many people practice mindfulness every day, but yeah. just the very fact that meditation and mindfulness in the coming decades, maybe, you know, years or whatever, um, it'll become something, you know, just accepted in people's lives as something you do. Uh, it doesn't carry any stigma to it. It doesn't carry any kind of weirdo exoticism with it. And this actually provides a foundation for rethinking Buddhism from the ground up. It's an entry into modernity, uh, both as a simple practice, a certain set of um, guiding principles that may or may not be overtly stated. And I think it's an incredibly potent foundation for you know, the establishment, you know, the emergence of a culture which is based on these kind of ideas. And um, uh, so I don't, I don't have any problems with it at all. Uh, in fact, I think it's a very positive thing. I'm very encouraged by the thought of people beginning with something simple like that and exploring it in a little more detail, much more so than Buddhists from monastic traditions or communities who are trying to water it down for the, for the poor, ignorant masses. Mm -hmm. But to what extent do we encourage them to study Buddhism? What approach can we offer people like that to, towards Buddhism, people who don't have the, the whole lifetime to spend exploring it and studying Pali and Tibetan and all these languages? Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, this, I think, is actually a very, very central question. And um, it, what I would like to think my work might achieve would be to, as it were, unpack um, a philosophy uh, that would provide people who practice mindfulness with a much more explicit framework for what they're doing. Now, such a philosophy would be equally based on early Buddhist texts, like mindfulness practices are, um, but it would, it, would, it would articulate them in a way that's entirely stripped of the cosmology and the soteriology and the metaphysics of ancient Indian uh, thought. Ah. That's the challenge. I don't honestly think there's much hope in trying to adapt Zen Buddhism or Tibetan Buddhism uh, in a way that makes it a little bit more palatable. I think it simply won't work because the underlying core beliefs and assumptions, uh, if they're not questioned, uh, will always get in the way. They'll always resurface at some point. Do you think these are species destined for extinction then? Yeah, basically, I do. Um, but, of course, you can never tell. And the fact is we are only too aware of how very odd systems of belief, um, I think of Mormonism, for example, um, are able to flourish in uh, supposedly a modern world. Oh, well, Mormonism creates its own world. It's, it's, it's brilliantly involuted. Well, maybe, but I mean, I don't know about it, but I do know that the things Mormons supposedly believe are no stranger than things Tibetan Buddhists believe. They have a support system to remain a part of that community, and it, it develops great integrity, great strength, and, and Mormonism is designing that whole system. Well, maybe the Tibetan Buddhists will figure out something similar. I don't know. I mean, arguably, the Shambhala movement is trying to do something comparable. And that might, of course, happen. I mean, none of us have the, a crystal ball in which we can see how these things are going to play out. But in terms of my own deepest intuitions, 
Uh, and what to me really uh, strikes me as, uh, as distinctive and original and radical in what the Buddha did, um, this requires uh, pretty much a major overhaul um, of uh, everything that goes under the name Buddhism today. Okay, that brings me to, to something. Now, we've talked at length about your reworking of the four, as you call it, because you felt compelled to drop the words noble and truths. I like it, and a lot of people like it very much. I find it extremely useful, and it's it's something I've always intuitively felt, that, that this is something you do, not something you believe. I mean, that, that seems quite foreign to the whole idea of what, to me, the Buddha was about, and I think to a lot of other people. But you've also said that though you've explained it in great detail and you've written about it at great length, you don't see that idea of uh, of the four being taken up very widely as yet. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? What, do you think people are resistant to change? Well, I think it's I think it's extraordinarily difficult to to initiate uh, a rethinking of such a core idea in Buddhism. The Four Noble Truths is so essential. I, I, it took me years to get out of that way of thinking. And uh, I've noticed that people will read my stuff and they will actually say they completely agree with it. And in the next sentence, they're off speaking Four Noble Truth language again. Yeah. It takes an awful long time. Um, let's say you have had five or ten years, you know, reading, thinking, and trying to understand what Buddhism is about, you'll have internalized the idea of the Four Noble Truths, probably quite unconsciously, uh, at a quite deep level within yourself. And it's very difficult to somehow get out of that habit, to stop thinking like that, to stop speaking like For that. For example, the idea that life is all about suffering. It's just that statement itself is reminiscent of that sense of belief, something that you have to believe, something that represents the meaning of Buddhism. I mean, I think that you're touching on something essential here. It's not just that I'm suggesting we, you know, we, we instead of saying truths, we say tasks. You have to, what is, what's behind that? Behind that is the idea that uh, Buddhism initially, as the Buddha taught it, uh, was not actually concerned with constructing a coherent belief system but was actually about providing us a framework within which we can live our lives. It has to move from dogmatism to a pragmatism, from a descriptive starting point to a prescriptive starting point. So you actually, and that's very alien uh, to most forms of, of, of religious practices. Yeah. We're particularly locked into the idea that uh, religions um, are in the business of telling us what, what is the case with the world and with ourselves? And yet, just a few minutes of reading pretty well any sutra, and that becomes startlingly clear. The Buddha was not trying to compose a philosophy. But as in other religions, people don't like to go to the source. They prefer to read the, the, the manicured explanations of what they're supposed to believe and do in order to be a good believer. And, and that is what religions cater for. They provide people with systems of consolation. And, and so I think, again, it just reinforces the point I'm trying to make. What um, I would like to see, and again, I might be hopelessly 
naive around this, um, is to try to is to think differently about how we behave in all domains of our lives. And I think Buddha, this is one of the reasons why Buddhism might matter, in the sense that it, if we at least if we go back to some arm of the source material, if we look rigorously at uh, what the Four Noble Truths might actually mean, we're actually offering a challenge as to how philosophy, religion, politics, uh, how do we go about those tasks? Um, I think there's an awful lot to be gained from the work of, of William James and the pragmatist tradition in America and uh, primarily in America, um, which it's interesting. You see, people all know of William James, all heard the name. Very few people realize that he was a, a very major philosopher. And very few people understand what pragmatism actually means. I mean, James was arguing against the notion of truth, you know, more than 100 years ago, but it hasn't taken on. It, it, it's very difficult to get people out of the habit that a statement uh, is a description of a state of affairs in the world, rather than, you know, stop stopping that behavior and concerning ourselves with, uh, injunctions and suggestions and uh, ex, you know, and, and, and exercise. In other words, why, you know, embrace suffering as junction rather than believe or disbelieve that life is suffering. A huge difference there, uh, and it's very, it's a very simple step to make, but it's a very difficult one to make because it somehow it goes against so much of how we are conditioned to think and speak and. Well, it is. It's very simple for people who don't identify themselves as Buddhists. It's something they can simply try out. But for people who do identify themselves, then it becomes a huge problem because they become torn and conflicted, the things they believe, the things their guru told them in some cases. And it becomes much more wrenching experience. So what do we do with, with these people? And what, what does this say? I mean, the point of becoming a Buddhist, is it not to understand that identifying too closely with things, taking them too seriously in this way, is the whole problem to begin with? And people are doing that precisely with Buddhism. They're making themselves, in a sense, more deluded through Buddhism than they would be if they were just plain ordinary lay folk. Well, you may well be right. And I don't think there's much we, you and me, uh, can do about those people. Uh, they're not going to listen to us. And in fact, the more you kind of criticize them, the more defensive they get. Yeah. And the more maybe invested in the rightness of their ideas do they become. Uh, they're not our audience. And I don't think we should be too bothered one way or another whether they listen to us or not. Um, no, the people I think that are our public, certainly my public, are the people, and there must be thousands of them because my books sell in fairly large quantities. And, and there are people out there who have maybe, you know, been through a, a traditional form of Buddhism and come out the other end feeling, you know, not so great about Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Others who have sort of picked up on mindfulness, others who have picked up on Zen calligraphy or whatever it might be, and has somehow become... Uh, found within themselves an affinity to, for what lack of a better, 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 a better world, they call Buddhism. Aesthetic affinity, an ethical affinity, whatever it might be. And yeah. they're the people, I think, uh, who are in some ways really, you know, seriously looking 
for um, a, a philosophy, a way of thinking, a, a, an attitude to life, a perspective on life, a, a, a sensibility. Um, they, they, they're, they're looking for ways in which that can, you know, they can access that through its being articulated in a way that's both rooted in early Buddhist teaching, but articulated in the language of our times and stripped of the metaphysics and the cosmology of Asia. And I think that's quite doable, but it's a hell of a long job. Yeah. And it's also not something that any one person is going to achieve. And yet most people are relatively on their own in doing this. They don't have the advantage of an ancient tradition and a strict code of behavior and beliefs to bind them together. So it's going to be harder for this sort of thing to take root, I would think, or to, to gain a real foundation. Well, one could even be quite even more even more pessimistic. I, I, I think um, take Quakerism, which I think is a it's a similar sort of attempt within Christianity. Now, the the plus with Quakerism is that it has survived now for two or three hundred years, I suppose. But the, uh, it's also remained pretty small. In fact, in the last census in the UK, uh, twenty eight thousand people declared themselves to be Quakers, but something like a hundred and fifty thousand declared themselves to be Buddhists. Uh huh. Now, of those 150, apparently you should subtract 100,000 who are basically working in Chinese restaurants and Thai restaurants. And things. This is not my guesstimate, it's somebody else. But, well, what it probably points to is there are about 50,000 people in the UK um, who are committed in one way or another to Buddhism in such a way that they self-identify with it. And they're probably pretty much all converts like you and me. Okay. Now, that's twice as many Quakers, uh, uh, twice as many people as there are Quakers. But at the same time, it's still a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of the population. And um, because a lot of these people are articulate and they're well-educated, they have access to the media, they can somehow get more airtime, let's say, than Baptists or whatever, and consequently get a higher profile in the public mind than their numbers might actually support okay but again is it about numbers is it about getting uh, you know do, do we do, do, does one count the success of one's work in terms of the number of people who like it on facebook i'd like to think that if we are committed to simply you know integrity and and clarity and uh, and good honest scholarship and clear thinking it doesn't really matter how many people adhere to what one says one hopes that perhaps one is just part of a broader movement that probably way after our lifetimes might bear fruit in something more significant. I don't know. But I think it's terrible uh, to try to think in terms of, you know, in initiating some large mass movement that's going to sort of become part of our Western mainstream. I just don't know. Yeah, clarity and the consistency of the message is really what's most important mm -hmm. well it has to be and that's really for someone like myself who tries to write with honesty and clarity and with a degree of scholarship that's all that really matters and at the same time though i don't write in a vacuum i write for a readership well you're writing for thinking people i'm writing for thinking people um a lot of people don't want to think they want to they want to be given stuff i mean that's that's usually the majority of people in any particular religious tradition. Mm -hmm. 
I suspect that's true. People who simply want to be secure, uh, to know that they're thinking and feeling the right things, or trying to, and that, that they can get on with their lives without complicated aspect of existence being settled. Is part of our job to shake those people up? Well, I don't think so. I think one has, a, a, I think there's a great danger here of, of a certain sort of superiority complex, a kind of elitism. Oh, yeah. In which you somehow sort of look down on people who are looking for a bit of security in their lives, who are looking for something that will help them get through the day, who are looking for a way they can be kinder to their kids. I think these are perfectly legitimate aspirations. And to belittle that because they somehow haven't quite got their philosophy about reincarnation straight, I think is beside the point. <laughs> and it's actually, I think, a rather, rather foolish thing to to try and do. No, people will will access these ideas and practices in ways that meet what particular needs they have. And some of us, you know, for our sins. Uh, find that we're not willing just to go along with the received wisdom, but uh, are searching for some kind of philosophical truth. And um, a language that might have a greater impact on people's lives uh, if they you know, find they can't deal with religion as superstition. We're looking for philosophical truth. Well, I didn't particularly like that word, um, said it, but um, uh, let's say philosophical integrity and coherence. No, truth is not, I shouldn't, shouldn't have said the word truth. Oh, dear. Well, I'm trying to avoid, but it just shows you how difficult it is to get out of that way of thinking. Language is a bitch, which is one of the topics I wanted to touch on as well. The bitchiness of language. Well, the awkwardness of language and, and our human tendency to take words as actually being the things that they're only pointing to. It's rather a difficult thing to describe and to put into words, but it's, to me it's always appeared to be one of the central problems that the Buddha was trying to address. Mm -hmm. The notion of I and mine, that instead of simply being designators, they actually become things that we put emotional effort into defending and, and preserving. And that this is the cause of, of much of our misery and disappointment. Well, I think that's true. But on the other hand, I think you've already fra phrased that uh, in a language that, you know, is, is, is fairly rarefied. Yeah. Um, people don't go around in their daily lives thinking in that way. Um, they have rather more immediate concern. Yeah, well, this is, uh, this is the sort of language I'm constantly searching for. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's difficult. I mean, I find I have to constantly question whether I'm, in a sense, just digging a hole in which to, um, you know, to, to, to further uh, my quest for some sort of ideal, the correct language, rather than consider other ways in which I may give voice or representation to what I'm trying to do. And I think there's a great role here for poetry and for the arts and for literature and cinema. I, I, I really think it's, it's way too narrow nowadays to think that we can sort all of these questions out by coming up with a, the right kind of language in, in terms of you know, just a spoken written words. Absolutely. I feel that I'm not just digging the same hole. I keep digging new holes. I keep giving up on the old ones and digging new ones again and again because no expression will be final and, and, and we do need to explore. Mm. 
very, very many different ways. No, absolutely. And, and I don't think we uh, will live to see the results of this kind of work. Um, I, I, I do have a sort of a faith, I suppose, that uh, Buddhism uh, you know, is a tradition with sufficient weight and history that um, it's not going to be just a kind of a faddish interest that will last 20 or 30 years in the West and then get replaced by something else. I do think that it is a tradition with resources that can enable it to flourish in conditions of modernity. And I think we're somehow sort of gropingly trying to answer those kinds of questions for ourselves and for those of, you know, who are speaking and thinking on a similar wavelength. But I think, it, you know, for now, for example, I think that's going to be a pretty small minority of people who are interested in Buddhism, meditation, and so on. But, you know, I find on my retreats that I teach and in the emails I get that there is, you know, very, very, you know, serious concern that people have to find a language within which they can um, lead their lives uh, in a more coherent way, in a, in a way in which their, their different needs are being met um, uh, in a holistic kind of way. Uh, instead of having to go off and do a bit of yoga in the evening and then you come and really read, read a bit of philosophy in the afternoon and whatever, and your life is sort of compartmentalized. That, I think, is one of the things people uh, are concerned about today is the way that their lives have become so fragmented, so broken up into different spheres and interests. And that, I think, is where religion comes into play, is that it offers us a, a paradigm or a bigger picture uh, within which we can bring these different elements of our life and our aspiration into greater alignment. And that, I think, is what the Dharma does. The Dharma, remember, just, just, just means the law. Yeah. We often forget that. I mean, it's, it's, it's trying to sort of tap into a sort of primary kind of lawfulness about how things unfold and how we, can, how we, we get things wrong and how we might correct that, and what kind of physical and emotional and mental exercises might help us do that, and how that would become a platform for then how we interact with others through our, our, our speech and our work and so on. All of these elements have to be sort of brought into an alignment uh, that accords with the kind of needs that are, are so pronounced. That sounds like Taoism trying to tap into the way things are. I, I've always been quite sympathetic to Taoism. Uh, and the early Chinese Buddhists, for example, considered the works of Lao Tzu and Chuang Tzu as having uh, equivalent authority to the texts in the Buddhist Tripitaka, at least in Zen. And um, I do think there is a sort of, there is a Taoistic element uh, in Buddhism, not one that's borrowed from Taoism or from China, but I think that's quite implicit, even explicit, in uh, at least a, a number of key uh, texts you find in the Pali Canon. Uh, I think the Buddha was was actually showing us how our um, our greed, our hatred, our delusion, our self-centeredness render our lives arid. Is the word he uses? The word I've just come across recently, kila. Arid, oh, I like that. barren, dry, it's great. And, and what an ar ar aridity 
is basically being locked into uh, a sense of oneself in the world that's determined by greed and hatred and self-centeredness. And that's arid in the sense that it doesn't allow us to flourish. It doesn't allow us to really come alive. And um, the Buddha describes himself, or at least he describes the, the Muni, the sage, as someone about whom there is nothing arid at all. Uh, and that lack of aridity, I think, is not just an absence uh, of things that, in a sense, are problematic, but it's actually a liberation, it's a freeing of the human person from elements within themselves, within the society, that actually prevent them from growing and becoming fully human. And that, to me, is what Buddhist practice is actually all about. Uh, and so it's, it's really about the Eightfold Path. It's about a way of life. Uh, and the extent to which that way of life is grounded into the Dhamma. I mean, the Dhamma, the Buddha describes the law. He describes it quite clearly as paticca samupada, as conditioned arising, which is a very Taoistic kind of idea too. There's an underlying sort of lawfulness in the way the world unfolds, in the way our lives unfold, that we've somehow lost touch with. We've, we've got out of sync uh, with that uh, unfolding. And so the practice is very much about recovering a sort of naturalness, actually. Through letting go of the artificiality which we brought to it. Yeah, letting go of, 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 of self-interest, letting go of fixed ideas, letting go of artificiality. And having let go of them, we simply discover who we are as opposed to having to, to rebuild ourselves in a new image. Exactly, yeah. So this is the heart of what the Dharma has to offer us. I would think there's a lot to be said for that, yeah. Um, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm translating something. I mean, I spent the last two or three weeks working on a text from the Sutta Nipata that, uh, called the, the Atakavaga, the, the, the section of the eights, which are... Uh, short verses and um, it comes through very very clearly there uh, this idea about um, you know you know dropping opinions and views and and just allowing yourself to respond naturally and spontaneously having a basic trust in one's you know innate capacity to to not screw up and um, it's very difficult it's so counterintuitive. It's so much against the grain of... Well, especially for us, we're given a very goal-oriented education. And our big philosophical question has always been, what is the point? That's very different from saying, what do I need to let go of in order to be free and happy? Mm -hmm. Trying to find an answer to make it concrete is exactly the it problem, is. isn't it? But you see, that I do think is where Buddhism or where the Dharma could come to matter because I think it provides us with the tools yeah. uh, to articulate that kind of aspiration, uh, understanding of what life, life is about, what it could be about. But we have to put it in plain English so it doesn't sound rarefied and, and weird and um, Asian. Absolutely, yeah. If we fail to do that, then if we, we've, we've failed, period. Uh, if, and this has happened, I think, in all Buddhist cultures in history, is that they only really, as it were, become, uh, they only really start to work when they can give voice to what they stand for in the idiom of the country or the community where they are. 
and, and that's not, that's not going to be any different here. In fact, arguably the the urgency or the need to find an appropriate idiom for Buddhism um, is particularly important in our time because we we are a literate world in China or Tibet. You know, it's only a small minority of the educated and the aristocratic who could have even had access to these ideas. Now, you know, Buddhist suttas and discourses, which previously would only have been read by monks in monasteries, are now available on the internet. And so we have a much more uh, well-informed and uh, more literate and more critically-minded public than Buddhism has ever had before. And the, the, the urgency, I feel, to be able to speak uh, to the condition of such people uh, you know, and to, to communicate what the Dharma might be able to offer them uh, is by far and away the most uh, important, I think also the most difficult thing to do. For more about what you've heard in today's podcast, visit us at thenakedmonk.com. There you'll find an entire webpage devoted to this and all other podcasts, as well as dozens of no-hold-barred blog posts. You can leave comments, chat with other visitors, and email me, Stephen Scatini, with your comments and questions. The music is Bach's Violin Partita No. 2 in D minor, performed by Christian Edinger in Brooklyn in 2011 and released into the public domain. The Naked Monk is a labor of love. If you'd like to support our work, you'll find a donate button on the left side of our website, just underneath the logo. Thanks for listening. See you next time.